Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. BCE. That's before the Common Era, or uh, just BC, for those of you still working from older history textbooks. Now, between the year 1500 BC and 700 CE, the Common Era, various Bantu groups migrated to the area as well, and the Hutu and the Tutsi began to establish permanent settlements as farmers and herders. By the year 1700 CE, there were eight kingdoms in the region, and the Kingdom of Rwanda, ruled by the Tutsi Nguyenya clan, would go on to conquer the other seven and establish the nation of Rwanda. The King Kigeli IV of Rwanda would establish the ethnic discrimination against Hutu that would establish the Tutsi as the ruling ethnic group. He was also the first Rwandan king to come into contact with Europeans. For context, Rwanda is about the size of Vermont in the U.S., and it's one of the most densely populated nations in Africa. In 1884, the Berlin Conference, which split up Africa amongst the nations of Europe, gave Rwanda to Germany. This is a period of history that we call the Scramble for Africa when the nations of Europe cut up Africa. When the nations of Europe cut up Africa like it was some kind of Christmas pie and turned it into their own personal stomping ground and economic playground. So Germany got Rwanda, and they ruled the colony by using the Rwandan monarchy. This allowed them to keep a smaller number of German troops in Rwanda by helping the Rwandan king secure their own power using their own troops. They kept the Tutsi in power because they believed them to be slightly more Caucasian than the Hutu, and so were racially superior and better suited for rule than the other ethnic groups. So the Tutsi then had privileges in education, jobs, government positions, wealth, housing, etc. After World War One, when the Germans were forced to give up all of their colonies, Rwanda was given to Belgium. Belgium maintained and in fact reinforced the policy of Tutsi supremacy and Hutu oppression. The Hutu were disenfranchised by the colonial government and forced to work in a corvée system. It's like indentured servitude, but it was only for a certain number of days each year instead of constantly. The Belgians further cemented the discrimination and segregation of Hutu by forcing racial identity cards that labeled you as Tutsi, Hutu, or Twa in 1935. Now, following World War II, Hutu started agitating for Rwandan independence from European control, and in 1957, the Hutu wrote and published a document called the Bahutu Manifesto. It was the first document to formally call the Tutsi and Hutu separate races, and it called for the Hutu 
to to rule by what they called statistical law, basically just meaning there are more of us so we should be in charge. Now the swap of power from Tutsi to Hutu was supported by the Catholic Church and by this point by the Belgian government who wanted to try and reduce the oppression and discrimination in Rwanda. So after a brief and bloody revolution, the Hutu took control and in 1962, uh, Rwanda became independent from European control. Around 336,000 Tutsi fled the country in fear of what the Hutu were going to do to them. Now, Rwanda was the African nation with the highest population density, which was definitely going to be a factor in the eventual genocide. In 1990, a civil war broke out between the Tutsi forces calling themselves the Rwandan Patriotic Front and the Hutu-led Rwandan army. The RPF was small and unable to hold any part of Rwandan territory, but they were able to wage a guerrilla war until 1992 when peace talks began. After some difficulties, the Arusha Accord were signed with the help of the UN, and a coalition government began to form. The UN sent a peacekeeping force to Rwanda, the United Nations Assistant Mission for Rwanda, or UNAMIR, and it looked like peace would soon emerge. During the early years of rule by Hutu President Juvenal Habia Ramana, extremist groups emerged with a distinct anti-Tutsi policy. Now, Habia Ramana wanted peace, but military officers and government officials published very racist anti-Tutsi messages in a magazine called Kangura. They absolutely did not want peace with the reviled Tutsi. Um, they also they regularly called the Tutsi in Yenzi, a Kenya Rwanda word meaning cockroaches. Kangura wasn't the only piece of propaganda that was going to exist during this time, spreading anti-Tutsi messages. In 1993, Radio Televisión Libre de Micolins, also called RTLM, began as a radio station that constantly bombarded the airwaves with virulent anti-Tutsi messages and did much to fuel the fires for eventual genocide. The editor of Kangura and the leaders of RTLM were all eventually charged and found guilty of genocide, incitement to genocide, and crimes against humanity in the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, but that's a little bit later in our story. Another piece of pro-Hutu anti-Tutsi propaganda that came out during this time was something called the Ten Hutu Commandments. Uh, we're just going to read through a few of those right now because they are wild. Number one, every Hutu should know that a Tutsi woman, whoever she is, works for the interest of her Tutsi ethnic group. As a result, we shall consider a traitor. Any Hutu who marries a Tutsi woman, befriends a Tutsi woman, or employs a Tutsi woman as a secretary or concubine. There was an idea of racial purity wrapped up in all this, and the idea that uh, Tutsi were inherently traitors to the Hutu, the true rulers of Rwanda. Every Hutu should know that every Tutsi is dishonest in business. His only aim is the the supremacy of his ethnic group. As a result, any Hutu who does the following is a traitor, makes a partnership with Tutsi in business, invests his money or the government's money in a Tutsi enterprise, lends or borrows money from a Tutsi, or gives favors to Tutsi in business, like obtaining import licenses, bank loans, construction sites, public markets, etc. All strategic positions, whether they be political, administrative, economic, military, or security, should be entrusted only to Hutu. The education sector, school pupils, students, teachers must also be a majority Hutu, and the Hutu should stop having mercy on the Tutsi. That one is particularly terrifying.
Propaganda played a massive role in inciting the masses in Rwanda towards genocide. Magazines like Kangora that we discussed earlier, which is a Kenya Rwanda word meaning wake others up, and the RTLM radio station were instrumental in inciting this genocide. RTLM quickly became the most popular radio station in Rwanda after it began broadcasting in July of 1993. It was right up there with Radio Rwanda, which were both radio stations that spread anti-Tutsi propaganda. So the radio affected violence in two ways, uh, direct incitement and what we call local spillover. Studies indicate that in areas with radio coverage, the violence increased by 12 to 13 percent on average. There was a slightly higher impact on militia groups than there was on civilians, but the impact was still felt in both groups. Even if a particular village didn't have a radio station, if a neighboring one did, violence would still increase. RTLM called violence against the Tutsi preemptive self-defense, and the station got heavy support even from the moderate Hutu president, Habia Ramana. Because the station was endorsed by both the military and the president, it was granted greater legitimacy than it might otherwise have had. And because so many people were participating, the cost of participating for each person was lessened because we as humans want to be a part of the group. So the more people there were that were participating in this anti-Tutsi propaganda and violence, the easier it was for us to justify to ourselves that we should also participate. Now in January of 1994, UN General Romeo Dallaire, the commander of Udemir, sent a fax to the UN stating that he had been informed of a plan to wipe out the Tutsi by the Hutu, and also to kill UN peacekeepers to force them to withdraw and thus make the plan easier. His informant had been forced to create a list of all the Tutsi in Kigali and had been told by local extremist militias that they could kill 1,000 Tutsi every 20 minutes. The UN refused to do anything useful and told Dallaire to not interfere with a civil war, even while genocide was occurring. Everything that happened in the Rwandan genocide was still happening in the shadow of the Rwandan civil war that had begun in 1990. And because state sovereignty was such a massively powerful force and still is in international politics, no one was really going to do anything about it. Now, on April 6, 1994, a plane carrying Habia Ramana, the president of Rwanda, and the Hutu president of Burundi were shot down. We still don't know if it was Tutsi or Hutu extremists who did it, but given the results, it's not super important that we understand that. Now, the next in line for the presidency, Prime Minister Agatha, Prime Minister Agatha Uwilingi Amana, was later assassinated by Hutu extremists, and the 10 Belgian peacekeepers tasked with her protection were tortured and killed. Within hours of the assassination of the president, large-scale violence against the Tutsi began. The Rwandan presidential guard, militias like the inter Hamwe and even Hutu civilians were armed with machetes and told to begin their work and spare no one. The Rwandan genocide was the fastest and most efficient killing spree of the 20th century. And despite huge amounts of information early on that genocide was brewing, neither the US nor the UN did anything about it. In fact, both did everything they could to delay and obstruct intervention. International politics, unfortunately, takes a realpolitik look at intervention. The answer to the question of inaction begins with a basic intellectual approach which views foreign policy as a lifeless, bloodless set of abstractions. 
nations. Nations, interests, influence, prestige, all are disembodied and dehumanized terms which encourage easy inattention to human lives. Basically, as far as international politics is concerned, policy decisions were never meant to include human lives as a factor. Now, when Romeo Dallaire had been sent to Rwanda to head up Unimir, he had been previously part of peacekeeping missions to Cambodia and Bosnia, but this was his first command. The only information that Dallaire was given on Rwanda came from an encyclopedia and a Michelin road map. I wish I was making this stuff up. When Unimir began, the UN had 70,000 peacekeepers out on 17 missions around the world, and Rwanda was basically at the bottom of the priority list. Dallaire had asked for 5,000 troops, but only got 2,500 troops, and his troops came from 26 different countries. And because the responsibility of supplying those peacekeepers came from the home nations, many were horribly undersupplied. You see, the UN doesn't have a standing army. All UN peacekeeping or peace-enforcing missions are supplied from the various nations of the UN. And because a lot of those nations have a much stronger economy than certain other nations, the efficacy of the efficacy of UN peacekeeping missions is kind of absolute shit. The Secretary-General of the UN, Kofi Annan, forbade Dallaire from interfering under the authority of Article 2, Subsection 4 of the UN Charter, which states, All members shall refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state or in any other manner inconsistent with the purposes of the United Nations. So even though the Belgian forces on the ground were UN peacekeepers and not Belgian soldiers, it was still seen as a matter of not violating the state sovereignty of Rwanda and not interfering with their civil war. Now, the U.S. specifically refused to get involved because of American anger over the Black Hawk Down incident during the Battle of Mogadishu in Somalia, where 19 U.S. soldiers were killed after their helicopter had been shot down. If you've ever seen or at least heard of the movie Black Hawk Down, it's it's that. It's that story. Um, and U.S. State Department spokesperson Christine Shelley was given specific instructions by by the U.S. State Department to only ever refer to the Rwandan genocide as acts of genocide to prevent the necessity of intervention because the word genocide, according to the UNCPPCG, carries with it a clarion call of action, but acts of genocide is a vague, nebulous deflection that we can ignore for as long as humanly possible. The U.S. was so ignorant of Rwanda that Lieutenant General Wesley Clark of the Unimir mission once asked is it Tutsi and Hutu, or is it Hutsi and Tutu? Bob Dole had this to say on the subject. We have no national interests in Rwanda, so that's that. And Dallaire was told to remain neutral at all costs, and that his only mission, once the killing started, was to protect European nationals. The UN and the US both said that what was happening was just another flare-up of the Rwandan civil war. At one point during the conflict, a plane full of Rwandans managed to escape the killing and get to Kenya, but they were immediately sent back without disembarking. We don't know the ultimate fate of this people, but given the brutality of the Rwandan genocide, they probably are all dead. Now, even though the US and the UN had taken armed intervention off the table, there were still things that could have been done. Uh, RTLM could have been stopped either by destroying their transmitter, transmitting
targeting counter-broadcasts or jamming the signal using the Air Force's Commando Solo plane. All three, though, were considered non-starters. The U.S. State Department's legal advisor said that stopping RTLM from broadcasting would have been, and I shit you not, a violation of free speech. In late April, some non-permanent UN Security Council members pressed for a Unimir 2 to be sent out. Now, Unimir had been a Chapter 6 deployment for peacekeeping. Unimir 2 would have been a Chapter 7 deployment for peace enforcing. Dallaire wanted something called an inside-out approach. He'd land 5,000 troops in Kigali and push out to the border, creating safe spots along the way. Richard Clark of the National Security Council wanted an outside-in approach. Basically, he'd create protected zones at the border, and then, you know, if any Tutsi made it that far, then they would be given protection. Um, no Tutsi was ever going to make it all the way to the border, though, so it was just uh, an excuse to not do anything. Clark has said that if he had to do it all again, he'd make the same choices. Um, he wouldn't change a single thing that he did. Dallaire got a mental health discharge from the Canadian Army in 2000 and still suffers from PTSD to this day. Um, he has said that my mission was to save Rwandans, theirs, meaning the UN's, was to put on a show. Some estimates indicate that during the first six weeks, 800,000 Tutsi were killed. That's about 133,333 people per week, or 19,047 people per day. At the beginning of the genocide, the Tutsi were 84% of the population, and the Tutsi were 15%, and the Twa were something around 1%. Tutsi and Twa, as well as any Hutu who sympathized with the Tutsi, were killed over the 100 days of the Rwandan genocide. You either took place in the massacre or you were massacred yourself. And most killings took place with machetes, although some army units involved used their rifles. Now, there have been efforts following the Rwandan genocide to establish something like peace, uh, some efforts in what we call transitional justice. Uh, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda was established in 1994, and it ended in the year 2015. Now, the ICTR wasn't the only attempt at uh, justice made during this time. There were also a lot of local Rwandan courts that put uh, people on trial. There were um, very, very local, what are called um, the Kaka courts, um, that put thousands upon thousands of people on trial um, in an attempt to rehabilitate people and reintegrate them back into the communities. Uh, the efforts for justice in Rwanda have been some of the largest post-genocidal efforts for justice that have ever existed. But we're just going to focus on the ICTR for now. Um, so the ICTR indicted a total of 95 individuals. Four individuals remain at large as fugitives and if captured will be tried before something called the Mechanism for International Criminal Tribunals. The ICTR convicted 61 individuals, 33 of whom are currently serving sentences, 22 of whom have completed their sentences, and 6 of of whom died while serving their sentences. The tribunal acquitted 14 individuals and transferred the cases against 10 individuals to national jurisdictions. The tribunal ended proceedings against six individuals before a final judgment was rendered, two of whom had their charges dismissed by the tribunal, two of whom had their charges withdrawn by the prosecutor, and two of whom died. The Rwandan genocide is one of the most brutal killing sprees of the 20th century, and it's one whose effects are still being felt to this day. It happened during my lifetime in 1994, and the racial issues that caused the Rwandan genocide didn't go away, uh, and the chances of them going away during my 
my lifetime aren't very good. There's gonna be racial tensions between the Hutu and the Tutsi for decades to come, and the work of creating a stable post-genocidal society will continue for I couldn't even begin to guess how long. But efforts are being made, and that is a good thing. Unfortunately, as with pretty much all genocides, the Rwandan genocide uh, does have its deniers. Um, there are people out there who will say that there was no genocide at all, that everything just happened within the confines of a civil war, that there were deaths on both sides. Um, in 2004, the BBC created a documentary called Rwanda, The Untold Story, wherein they indicated that the majority of people killed during the genocide weren't Tutsi at all, but were in fact Hutu, and because of that documentary, the BBC news organization has been banned from entering the uh, country of Rwanda. Usually I'm not a fan of banning entire news organizations from operating within a country, uh, but in this case I can hardly blame the Rwandan government for choosing to do what they did. This wraps up our episode on Rwanda. Obviously there is significantly more detail that we could go into on the various aspects of the genocide, the specifics of it, um, but there's no need to get into too much of the bloody details. We've covered really the broadly important parts of it. Next month we'll be discussing a genocide that doesn't get discussed nearly enough and one that I didn't even know about until I got to grad school, uh, the Cambodian genocide of 1975. That will also wrap up our uh, arc on the four seminal genocides. Uh, some people might disagree on what exactly the four seminal genocides are, or if there even are just four seminal ones, but um, we'll be wrapping up that particular arc next month with Cambodia, and then we'll be moving on to something that I'm very excited to get to, and that I've been wanting to get to since I started this project. I'm not going to tell you what that is now, because I do want to leave you in some amount of suspense, but you'll hear all about it in next month's episode on Cambodia. So, I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that I've got some very exciting news, and that exciting news is that Genistory has officially joined a podcasting network. Insert pause for applause. We've joined the That's Not Canon network, uh, which is super very cool. Um, the head of the network reached out to me because he found my uh, history page on Facebook uh, and thought that my podcast sounded like a good fit, so here we are. You can find Genistory now at that'snotcanon.com backslash Genistory. I'm gonna just give you a little bit of information on that podcasting network now, um, and then we'll finish up with our outro, and then you can go about your day and, you know, uh, get a pumpkin spice latte in my name. That's Not Canon is a platform for creators to tell interesting, funny, innovative, and sometimes slightly odd stories. Uh, it's a podcast network that is based out of Australia, so I guess I'm going to be getting more uh, listenership over in Australia. That's pretty cool. Uh, actually, I'm very excited for that. So TNC began when a group of busy friends who couldn't be in the same room wanted to play Dungeons and Dragons together. Damn, that's a mood. Uh, and it has expanded into a network of pals across Australia and further who run the gamut of genres from musical theater to comedy, conspiracy theories to true crime to the all bad, bad movies that somehow get released and all the freaky business that your favorite characters got up to at Hogwarts. At its heart, TNC is a network of friends and experts who are committed to creating the best independent content they can and have fun while creating it. Um, and I'm very, very proud and pleased to be a part of them. And they have a lot of podcasts. There's a lot of stuff over there to uh, listen to. Uh, so much so that if I just went through the whole list of them, it would uh, take a long time. Uh, so I'm just going to highlight one podcast right 
right now uh, and then maybe each month I will just keep highlighting another a different podcast so the first podcast from that's not canon that I'm going to highlight and one that I'm very excited to get to listen to is called an assemblage of grandiose and bombastic grandiloquence a verbose vocabulary podcast do you take great pleasure out of using large and obscure words that no one understands yes I do perhaps you enjoy peppering a strange adjective into a work email or finding a new verb to pursue as a hobby or perhaps you're a seasoned logophile such as myself well this is surely the podcast for you an assemblage of grandiose and bombastic grand eloquence brings together all the world's most interesting bizarre and fascinating language to teach you a new word every day that is awesome and it looks like they put out an episode every single day and each day has a different topic from insults to words that are not native to english to just strange words to phobias and philias this sounds great um it's written by taylor davidson um taylor if you're listening to this i'm super excited to start your podcast once i once i make my way through the backlog of not another DD podcast if you like what you heard here you can follow us on various social media platforms uh we're at genistorypod on twitter facebook.com backslash genistorypod or you can send an email to genistorypod at gmail.com if you have any questions comments topics that you'd like to hear about etc if you'd like more of just me in your life you can find me on twitter though i use it very rarely these days at prof john strange and on facebook at john lestrange colon historian you can also join the twenty-five thousand people who've decided to listen to me ramble about history on TikTok at Dr. Hufflepuff. If you're looking for something to read during this quarantine, you can find both of my books, Representations of Genocide in Cartoons and Representations of Genocide in Video Games on Amazon. They're available in paper book and ebook formats. Please give those a rate and review while you're at it. Speaking of ratings, we got a new one over at Apple Podcasts. Four stars, still respectable. No review though, so I don't know what I could do to earn those five stars from you unknown raider so if you are listening let me know so that i can work on improving it as always thank you to kevin mcleod over at incompetech for our show music uh, which i realize that i've never actually said the name of it's called heavy crusade um and it's significantly longer than just the 30 seconds that you hear at the beginning and end of the show um so go over and give that a listen thank you to the app hatchful and to my amazing wife frankie for designing and then editing our logo as always i'm john and this is Jenna Story. We agreed to do this. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.